Well, if you turn in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 2, open our time together with a reading from Ephesians chapter 2. And as you're making your way there, let me just uh, briefly remind us what it is we are doing. Um, In these first few lessons on church history, we are doing a quick survey of the first 300 years of, of the church's history, and we're doing that because two years ago, when we started a church history class before uh, the pandemic ended our Sunday school hour, Pastor Kyle walked us through those first 300 years. So uh, see this, this, these first few lessons as uh, more of a supplement to what Pastor Kyle has already taught us. If you want more information on this era of church history, I strongly urge you to go back to the archives and sermon audio and on YouTube, uh, those lessons are still available. Um, and so Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. This is the word of God. Praise be to the Lord. Our opening prayer this afternoon is taken uh, from an early first century document called the Didache. Now, there is some disagreement about the dating of the Didache, uh, also known as the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. Uh, It seems to have been written during a time when you had traveling apostles and prophets still going around doing their thing, so which testifies to a very early date. Uh, some, Some scholars put it as early as 80 A.D., And this is an early uh, church manual, and it's from this document, the Didache, again, that our opening prayer comes from. So if you will uh, bow your heads and join with me as we pray together. We give thanks to you, O Holy Father, 
on behalf of your holy name, which you caused to dwell in our hearts and on behalf of knowledge and faith and immortality, which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be glory forever. You, almighty master, have created all things for your name's sake. You have given food and drink to all humanity to enjoy so that they might give thanks. But you have graced us with spiritual food and drink and eternal life through your servant. Above all, we give thanks to you because you are mighty. To you be glory forever. Remember, O Lord, your church to deliver her from all evil and to perfect her in your love and gather her from the four winds whom you have sanctified into your kingdom, which you have prepared for her. For yours is the power and the glory forever. Let grace come and let this earth pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If some are holy, let them come. If some are not, let them repent. Maranatha. Amen. Well, last time we opened up with what we call the intertestamental period, that that time between the writing of the Old and the New Testament. And we looked at those three major elements that came together to form the background of the early church. We spoke of the Jewish religion, Greek culture, and the Roman government. This afternoon, as we quickly survey the first 300 years of church history, we want to begin to consider how the church came to terms with these dominating influences. And we begin with the most immediate influence, that of the Jewish religion. How will the church relate to Israel? Of course, even before Christ's death and resurrection, there was already tension between the Jewish leadership and Christ's disciples. In John chapter 9, the apostle records the incident of Jesus healing a man who was born blind. This miracle comes to the attention of the Pharisees, and they call for the man to give an account of this miraculous restoration. And after some back and forth, the Pharisees do not want to admit that this Jesus is able to work such miracles. And so they call the man's parents to give an account. Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? They answer, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And John adds this very interesting parenthetical explanation. John says, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So even before our Savior's passion, there is tension between the synagogue and the church. And as the Jews were the ones who instigated the crucifixion of Christ, so they carry on persecuting the early church. It was a Jewish crowd that put to death Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And Paul goes, as Paul goes about his missionary journeys, we see the Jews following him and inciting riots. 
And though Christianity was often viewed by outsiders as just another Jewish sect, the Jews made it clear that the Nazarenes, as they called them, were of a different spirit. Around the year 80, they adopted as part of their standing prayer, a prayer that faithful Jews would repeat three times a day, a creedal anathema of the followers of Christ. It reads thus, For the apostates, let there be no hope and uproot the kingdom of arrogance speedily and in our days. May the Nazarenes and the sectarians perish as in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be written together with the righteous. You are praised, O Lord, who subdues the arrogant. Now the church, which was becoming rapidly more of a Gentile movement, were equally eager to make a division between them and the Jews. The Didache, the the document that I referenced in our opening prayer, uh, contains instructions for fasting. And it instructs Christians, quote, Let not your fast be with the hypocrites, meaning the Jews, for they fast on the second and fifth days after the Sabbath. They fast on Mondays and Thursdays. But you fast on the fourth day and the day of preparation, that is Wednesdays and Fridays. Jews and Christians would henceforth be regarded as two separate groups. Nonetheless, even with the synagogue and the church parting ways, it could not be denied that Christianity was the inheritor of a religious tradition that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, a tradition that is inscripturated in the books, uh, the sacred books of the Jews that we call our Old Testament. How should Christians think of this previous revelation? What is our relationship to it? In this regard, we take our cue from the teachings of the apostles. They taught that in Christ, the end of the ages had dawned. The beginning of God's new creation. This new creation would share some similarities with the old one, but there would also be differences. The trick was to find that perfect balance between continuity and discontinuity. Ephesians 2.11-22, 2.11 the passage that we opened up with, offers such a careful balance. In this passage, Paul is unfolding the mystery of Christ. He says in chapter 3, verse 6, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In the previous dispensation, the Gentiles were, according to chapter 2, verse 18, strangers and aliens. But now we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Christ accomplished this, Paul says, in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. By abolishing this law of commandments that separated them, Christ has taken the Israelite and the Gentile and he has created in himself one new man in place of the two. 
God's plan of redemption was typified in the ancient commonwealth of Israel, but has now been realized in the new covenant church. Here is continuity and discontinuity. Another great passage in this regard would be that olive tree analogy that Paul gives us in Romans 11. There, the olive tree represents Israel. The nourishing root of the tree is the patriarchs. The unbelieving Jews are those branches of the tree that are broken off because of unbelief. The Gentiles are represented as a wild olive shoot that are grafted into the tree by faith. Again, you have a balance between continuity and discontinuity. But what happens when we choose to overemphasize one of these aspects against the other? In the early church, there were two major, what we would now call heretical, movements. One overemphasizing continuity between the Testaments, the other discontinuity. We want to consider first the Judaizing heresy. The Judaizing heresy was a movement in the early church that overemphasized the continuity between the Testaments. So much so that these Christians argued that in order to be saved, it was necessary to follow the law of Moses, particularly the rite of initiation into the Old Covenant, which was circumcision. This is the only heresy in the church that is addressed and answered in full in the pages of the New Testament. We see it creep in at first when the gospel begins to go out to the Gentiles. We read in Acts chapter 10 about Cornelius' household and the vision that Peter has on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner. You probably remember it. A sheet filled with unclean animals, descends from heaven, and a voice tells Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Peter responds, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice says, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now this happens three times. So when three Gentile visitors show up at Simon's door asking Peter to come to Cornelius' home, Peter gets the hint. He goes to Caesarea, preaches the gospel, and Cornelius' household is saved. Well, in the next chapter, Acts 11, Peter goes to Jerusalem and he's relaying what has happened uh, to Cornelius' household. And the scripture says the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Well, another similar instance occurs in the book of Galatians, where Paul criticizes Peter for refusing to associate with Gentiles. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, 
so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That phrase, live like Jews, is the translation of a single Greek word. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shame my my Greek instructor, uh, eudaizo, from which we get the word Judaizer. But the most crucial passage in regards to this error is in Acts chapter 15. If you want to open up to Acts chapter 15 and follow along, uh, the so-called Jerusalem Council... Paul tells us what sparked the controversy. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And what's intended here is more than just circumcision. But as the Christian Pharisees say in verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Under the old covenant, converts to the faith of Abraham were not only expected to be circumcised, converting to Judaism was very painful, but also to keep all the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic legislation. Kosher laws, Sabbath regulations, the festivals. If it was true under the old covenant, these Judaizers reasoned, it must be the same under the new covenant. Again, emphasizing or overemphasizing continuity. So the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem gathered together to settle the controversy. And Peter, relaying how the grace of God had affected the salvation of the Gentiles, puts his finger on the heart of the matter when he says in verse 11, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. This is the crux of the issue. Is the grace of God sufficient for salvation? Or is something else needed? Is it enough simply to receive the grace of God by faith alone in the finished work of Christ, or do we need to add our own law-keeping in order to be saved? God himself had accepted the Gentiles uncircumcised, unobservant of the Mosaic law, who are we to stand in the way of God? And notice how Peter answers the question, we believe that we Jews will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they, the Gentiles, will. In other words, Peter is confessing, we Jews are in as much need of the grace of Christ as the Gentiles, if there is to be any hope of salvation. Well, armed with this Holy Spirit-inspired decision from the church in Jerusalem, Paul goes to war against the Judaizers, riding against their dangerous doctrine in most of his epistles. Christ is the true sacrifice. He is the true 
circumcision. The true Sabbath. And He is the true High Priest whose eternal heavenly office has ushered in a new covenant in place of the old. In Hebrews 7 we read, For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. That is scandalous to speak of Torah as weak and useless. He says, For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The Judaizers are not only peddling an irritating inconvenience, especially if you're a man. They're preaching a false gospel. Paul warns in Galatians chapter 5, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. The victims of the Judaizers are in danger of losing more than just a little skin, but their very souls. The Judaizing heresy remained alive for a few centuries in fringe groups like the Ebionites and the Nazarenes. The Ebionites uh, believed some very strange things, uh, including that the Apostle Paul was an apostate. Therefore, we just disregard all of his writings and that the Mosaic rituals are still binding on all But these groups fade into the background of church history, only their ideas uh, finding new adherents every once in a while in in isolated groups. So we come then to uh, that second heretical movement that I mentioned earlier. A much more radical and influential heresy that cropped up in the second century from the teaching of a man named Marcion. Now, Philip Schaff, the church historian from the the 1800s, he writes that Marcion was the most earnest, the most practical, and the most dangerous among the Gnostics, full of energy and zeal for reforming, but restless, rough, and eccentric. Uh, Marcion lived from uh, around 85 to 160. He was a PK, a pastor's kid, and we all know How troubling some of those can be, right? We've got like 20 of them here in this church. I'm joking, I'm joking. We love our pastor's kids. Uh, He was the son of a bishop in Pontus, which is located in modern-day Turkey. He relocated to Rome, where he was active between the years 140 and 155. By trade, Marcion was a wealthy ship owner. He donated a vast amount of his estate to the church, And for that, he won for himself a great deal of respect. But by the year 144, the church had caught on that he was teaching false doctrine, and they excommunicated him. Well, Marcion, as a mariner, traveled widely, and he brought with him this heresy uh, wherever he went. By the time of his death, there were many Marcionite churches all over the Mediterranean, His influence is attested to to by the vast amount of literature written against him in the 2nd and 3rd century. Any apologist worth his salt wrote against Marcion. 
Justin Martyr, said that Marcion was the most formidable heretic in his day. Irenaeus reports an incident in Rome when Polycarp, now you've heard us talk about Polycarp before, the, the famous disciple of the Apostle John, Bishop of Smyrna, and eventual martyr. Polycarp came to Rome where he encountered Marcion on the street. Now, Polycarp passed him by without greeting, and Marcion called out, Polycarp, don't you know me? To which Polycarp responded, of course I know you, the firstborn of Satan. That's pretty tough words. <laughs> Schaff says that the Marcionites were still around even until the 10th century. Well, what was Marcion's heresy that got him into so much trouble and earned him the reputation as the arch-heretic by the early apologist? Well, Marcion was influenced by Gnosticism's strict dualism. If you want to know more about Gnosticism, Pastor Kyle did an entire uh, teaching on Gnosticism. You can find that uh, in the old messages. This strict dualism, uh, the good and the true were equated with the spirit, while the evil and the false were a product of the flesh, the material world. Marcion explained this dualism by suggesting the existence of two different gods. The good god and the bad god. Furthermore, he reasoned, that Christ taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, that you will know a person by their fruits. You all remember that from Matthew chapter 7. You will know them by their fruits. Well, what does Yahweh say in Isaiah 45? I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, Yahweh, do all these things. Well, if the fruit that Yahweh produces is evil, what else can that mean but that Yahweh the creator, the God of the Jews, he is the evil God. The God of the Old Testament was evil, vindictive, jealous, only righteous. He was a God of wrath. But the God of the New Testament, now here, is a God of love and mercy and forgiveness. A God who is simply good. The heretofore unknown God sent his son Jesus to overthrow the evil Jewish God. Now Marcion lays out this dualism in, a, in his book called The Antitheses. Uh, An antithesis are things that are opposed to one another. The apologist Tertullian writes, The separation of law and gospel is the primary principle of the uh, exploit of Marcion. His disciples cannot deny this, which stands at the head of their document, that document by which they are inducted into and confirmed in this heresy. For such are Marcion's antitheses, or contrary oppositions, which are designed to show the conflict and disagreement of the gospel and the law, so that from the diversity of principles between these two documents, they may argue further for a diversity. Of God's. To propagate his teachings, 
Marcion glued together his own version of the Bible. He cut out the Old Testament entirely, and he removed anything from the New Testament that he deemed too Jewish. After he was all said and done, he had 11 books. The Gospel, which was a mutilated version of the Gospel of Luke, and 10 of Paul's epistles, what he called the Apostle. He rejected Paul's pastoral letters, Matthew, Mark, and John, Acts, and the Catholic epistles, and the book of Revelation. He denied the incarnation, espousing a form of docetism. Christ only appeared to be in human flesh, but he didn't really have a human nature. There is no infancy narrative in his gospel. Jesus just beams down from heaven during the reign of Tiberius. Now, despite this violent antinomianism, Marcion's religion was strict and ascetic. Meat and wine were forbidden, and so was marriage. Married couples could only be baptized into Marcion's church after taking a vow of abstinence. So much for Marcion's religion. If the Judaizers represent a radical continuity between the Testaments, Marcion taught a radical discontinuity. Now, perhaps the most able opponent of Marcion was the North African apologist Tertullian. Again, another plug for the previous teachings. Pastor Kyle has done an entire lesson on the life and influence of Tertullian, if you're interested. Uh, Tertullian would have been a child in Marcion's old age, but just after the turn of the century, somewhere around 207, he published his five books against Marcion. The first book is a general refutation of Marcion's theology, demonstrating that the God of Marcion lacks those divine attributes that are proper to deity. In the second book, he expounds on the goodness of God in not only creating the world, but in permitting the fall and in redeeming mankind. He also answers some of Marcion's antitheses. Why does the Old Testament say that God repents? Why is it that God has to ask Adam, where are you, as if he didn't know? Why does he have to come down to Sodom and Gomorrah to see for himself that the city is so wicked? Things like that. In the third book, he demonstrates that the God that Christ reveals is none other than Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, the God of the Old Testament. His fourth and fifth books are by far the longest, and they are a commentary, the fourth on Marcion's gospel and the fifth on his apostle. And in that, uh, Tertullian demonstrates that these butchered documents don't support Marcion's false teaching. Now, originally I had planned to walk us through the argument uh, in Tertullian's first book, uh, but I just don't have time this morning. Uh, he basically demonstrates that Marcion's God lacks those qualities that are definitional of the divine nature. Even that attribute that Marcion himself most gloried in, God's goodness. If God does not hate sin, if he does not punish sin, then he is not good. Now, if you have any more questions about Tertullian's response to Marcionism, you can come talk to me afterwards. We can talk more about it. But 
we press on. Uh, as Christians battled against heresy, they helped delineate the boundaries of orthodoxy. But, at the same time, genuine Bible-believing Christians disagreed over where that balance between continuity and discontinuity was to be found. One of the earliest post-apostolic controversies highlights this division. We call it today the Quartadeciman controversy. I'm just curious, has anyone here heard of the Quartadeciman controversy? Has no one, no one heard of the Quartadeciman controversy? It kind of gets buried in the, in the church history books. The controversy centered on when Christians ought to celebrate Easter, the annual feast celebrating the resurrection of Christ. No doubt most of the early Jewish converts to the faith continued to keep the week-long Passover feast when, as the gospel tells us, Christ instituted the Lord's Supper and during which he was crucified and he rose again. And there can also be no doubt that for these Jewish Christians, the Passover came to have a very different meaning. No longer just a celebration of Israel's exodus from Egypt in accordance with the law, but the great act of redemption, the greater exodus, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, our freedom from the bondage of the slavery of sin and death. For Gentile Christians in keeping with the decree of the Jerusalem Council, they celebrated the feast without any import of the Exodus and the Jewish law. It was solely about Christ. Philip Schaff, again the church historian, he says, Passover and Easter were connected in a continuous celebration combining the deepest sadness with the highest joy. And gradually it developed into what we call Holy Week, a time of fasting and feasting in commemoration of the Lord's death and resurrection. Passover, associated with the slaying of the Passover lamb, came to be associated with the death of Christ and was regarded as Good Friday, Easter Sunday, with Christ's resurrection. Ashaf writes, It is certainly the oldest and most important annual festival of the church and can be traced back to the first century or at all events in the middle of the second where, when it was universally observed, though with a difference as to the day and the extent of the fast connected with it. And herein lies the controversy. Some Christians particularly those in Asia Minor, claiming to follow the precedent handed down to them by the apostles Philip and John, continued to celebrate the Lord's Passion on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, the day on which the Passover lamb was to be slain in accordance with Exodus chapter 12. Following the ancient tradition that Christ would return sometime in the evening before the day of his resurrection, the church would fast and keep an all-night vigil, and when Christ didn't return, they would break their fast, usually with eggs, in case you were wondering where Easter eggs came from, 
And they would celebrate the Lord's Supper together on the next day, which would be 15 Nisan or Nisan. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Well, that's a problem. 14 Nisan is based on the lunar calendar, meaning the day is celebrated on the solar, uh, the day on which it is celebrated on the solar calendar changes from year to year. One year it can be on a Tuesday, next year it's on a Thursday, another year it's on a Wednesday, or a it moves around. Meaning, these Christians were breaking their fast and celebrating the Lord's Supper on a day besides Sunday, the Lord's Day. And these Christians, because they kept the 14th day of Nisan, were called the 14thers, or in Latin, the Quartadecimans. Everyone else always celebrated the death of Jesus on that Good Friday and his resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. So there would be a time of fasting leading up to Easter Sunday, and when the fast was broken, uh, the church celebrated the Lord's Supper together. Well, what was really at stake here? Again, Schaff is helpful. The gist of the Paschal controversy was whether the Jewish Paschal Day, be it Friday or not, or the Christian Sunday should control the idea and time of the entire festival. In the former case, the chief stress was laid on the Lord's death. In the latter, on his resurrection. The main object was to secure uniformity of observance and assert the originality of the Christian festive cycle and its independence of Judaism. Well, sometime in the middle of the second century, it became known that Christians were celebrating Easter differently. Irenaeus tells us about a debate between Polycarp, again the bishop of Smyrna, who was a quartadeciman, and Anicetus, the bishop of Rome. This is what Irenaeus says. Uh, once again, Pastor Kyle has done an entire teaching on the life and influence of Irenaeus, if you want more information on who he was. This is what Irenaeus says. And when the blessed Polycarp visited Rome in Anicetus' time, it might have been the same occasion where he ran into Marcion. I don't know how often Polycarp went to Rome. But they had minor disagreements also on other matters. They made peace immediately, having no wish to quarrel on this point, talking about Easter. Anicetus could not persuade Polycarp not to observe 14 Nisan, since he had always done so with John, our Lord's disciple, and the other apostles whom he knew. Nor did Polycarp persuade Anicetus to observe it, who said that he was bound to the practice of the presbyters before him. Nevertheless, they communed with each other, and in the church, Anicetus yielded the consecration of the Eucharist to Polycarp, obviously out of respect. So, um, just like we do in our church, um, it was the responsibility of one of the elders of the church to bless the elements and then to distribute them to the rest of the congregation. Uh, Anicetus is yielding to Polycarp, a visiting elder, allowing him to bless the elements and to distribute them. Uh, obviously a sign that this controversy isn't going to divide us. Irenaeus concludes, they parted from each other in peace 
and peace in the whole church was maintained both by those who observed 14 Nisan and those who did not. So the church maintained peace and unity even in the midst of these ritualistic differences. But such charity wouldn't last forever. These Easter disagreements came to a fever pitch toward the end of the second century when the churches gathered together in local synods to settle the matter once and for all. Most countries, agreeing with Rome that it was improper to break the fast and celebrate the Lord's Supper on any other day besides the Lord's Day, uh, continued to observe, uh, maintain that the, the Easter ought to be observed on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. But the churches in Asia Minor insisted on continuing their practice. After letters and rebukes being exchanged back and forth, Victor, the Bishop of Rome, had had enough. Eusebius writes, at this, uh, by the way, Eusebius is uh, a church historian uh, writing um, in the early 4th century, um, around the time of the Council of Nicaea. Most of what we know about the early church history comes from the writings of Eusebius and his ecclesiastical history. This is what Eusebius says, at this, Victor who presided at Rome, immediately tried to cut off from the common unity as heterodox all the Asian dioceses, along with neighboring churches, and pilloried them in letters announcing the absolute excommunication of all the brethren there. You won't celebrate Easter like we do? Fine, you are outside of Christ. Well, not everyone was happy with Victor. On this regard, Eusebius writes, but not all the bishops were pleased by this, and they requested instead that Victor pursue the cause of peace, unity, and love toward his neighbors. So much for the Roman Catholic myth of papal supremacy. Their words, this is again Eusebius, their words sharply reprimanding Victor are still extant. Among them was Irenaeus who wrote in the name of the Christians he supervised in Gaul. Now, Irenaeus was the bishop of Lyon, a well-respected apologist in the early church. He wrote to Victor, and this is what he said. For the dispute is not only about the day, but also the practice of the fast. Some think they ought to fast for one day, others for two, others even more, and some count 40 day-night hours in their day, meaning that they fasted from 3 p.m. on Friday when when Christ was crucified until 7 a.m. on Sunday morning. Such variation in observance did not begin in our own day, but much earlier in the time of our predecessors who seems to have regarded uh, seems to have disregarded accuracy for simplicity in establishing future practice nevertheless they all lived in peace with each other as do we and the disagreement in the fast affirms our agreement in the faith unity of the faith irenaeus says does not mean uniformity There are things that we must agree on, yes. And there are things that, though we might disagree, nonetheless we are bound to maintain the bonds of Christian love 
even in the midst of our disagreements. Anicetus, Polycarp, and Irenaeus offer us an example that I think we ought to emulate in many of our modern-day controversies. And by the way, I got permission to do this. If you want more information about uh, how this might apply in our modern worship, uh, things that are allowed and things that aren't allowed, talk to Brother Aaron because he knows more about it than I do. I don't have time to get into it. Christians continue to disagree over how Easter should be celebrated until the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, when a uniform practice was finally established. Easter was fixed on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. There's some math involved. But it would always fall on a Sunday after Passover, sometime between March 22nd and April 25th. So, the church would continue to wrestle with the relationship between the Old and New Testaments. And in many ways, we are still struggling to find that perfect balance. When we argue over baptism, whether or not it should be applied to infants, like circumcision was in the Old Testament, disagreements between dispensationalism and covenant theology. Has anyone ever heard of theonomy? Though we still have our disagreements, our fathers in the faith have entrusted us with a rich heritage delineating the boundaries of orthodoxy. May we continue in their labors until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Amen. All right, well, if we have, uh, we have some time for... Uh, questions and comments if anyone would like to offer any. We didn't have any last time. Questions? Comments? Anyone? We have a mic going around. Does anyone have any questions or comments? Oh, well, you don't have a whole lot of time. Well, I've got the mic and I've got a question. Yeah. Um, they, uh, sorry, you were talking about um, Polycarp celebrating Easter with John. They wouldn't have called it Easter. What would they have called it at that point? Um, yeah, so Easter is, a, is an English word. Um, the Greek word is Pascha. So that's, that's the word that they would, have, they would have used. The Greek and the Latin is, is Pascha. And so that just, that just means Passover. They would have called it Passover? Yes, the, the, in most languages, um, the name for Passover and Easter is the same. It's Pascha. Um, the, the difference in the terminology, at least in the English language, it's been a long time since I looked into this, um, can be traced back to Tyndale in his translation of the Bible. Um, when he was translating the Old Testament, the, I believe it's Pesach, I think that's the, that's the Hebrew, uh, it's Pesach, I think it's the Hebrew. He translated, the, he invented the word Passover, the English word Passover. Um, when he came to the New Testament and he ran into the word Pascha, he translated it as Easter. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Christ, our Easter lamb, has been sacrificed. So, so that's where the, the distinction comes from in the name. It's, I think it's easier if we, if we use different words to... Uh, the. the the Jews in England would have called their Passover Easter um, before that time. So, uh, 
that clears up the confusion in the terminology. I had a question um, regarding um, early believers, like first century church, um, those who were um, Jewish. Um, would they still celebrate like Shabbat, ser- or their Shabbat services or um, uh, meals together because of more ethnic? Ethnically, that's kind of what, or culturally, that's what they did in that area. And then also join together for the Lord's Day celebration? I believe so. Um, We see in the New Testament um, that Paul, for instance, in the book of Acts, he's eager to get back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, which was a Jewish festival. Uh, So so they would have maintained uh, some of those Jewish uh, ceremonies. But I think they would have done so understanding them in light of the, the fullness of revelation that has come in Jesus Christ. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know if you have any sources. Just um, I, I would agree that they would have that different meaning, but would they still celebrate with those they knew, you know, who, who did not know the Messiah, right? Oh, okay. You know, okay. would they in good conscience still do that? Um, and if so... Like, do you think that continued on, like, after that first generation I, of Jewish Christians? I think the impetus might have been to continue to, okay. to maintain that fellowship with Jews, okay. if for any other reason than to share the gospel right. with, their, with their fellow countrymen. The Jews made that very difficult. <laughs> when you have to stand in prayer and, and say, I hope all the Nazarenes go to hell. Like, you can't, you know, it, yeah. it doesn't work. <laughs> so... Um, I think they, they would have maintained that practice until the Jews cut it off. Made it impossible to do so. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Any other questions? Good questions, by the way. Are you gonna are you gonna help us pronounce that Greek word? No. <laughs> Um, piggybacking off of uh, Amanda's question, it's very interesting. You see already early on in the church, at least what you've brought out, there's debate over how the fast should be done, when it should be done. But there's no mention here of anyone who is not interested in doing, doing the fast. And obviously it raises the question of like church calendar, um, you know, Paul and Colossians first century is already saying things like, you know, one person regards one day as better than another. Some re- regards all days alike. Right. Obviously, we're not bound by Old Testament festivals. Uh, I-, I was just curious, can you speak at all to the fact, unless there's another side that you just didn't bring out for time's sake, of what was the church's general attitude towards the necessity? Obviously, if they're willing to excommunicate over a date, it raises questions in my mind of, obviously, liberty of conscience, I would say. Yeah. If someone doesn't want to celebrate what we call Easter, they're free to do so. They regard it just the same as every other Sunday. You know what I mean? I don't know. you have any thoughts on that? Um, what, what exactly is the... <laughs> it's if you have thoughts. Yeah, so the big... Do you, do you think that they saw it as a, a moral issue to okay. not do the fast? And Philip Schaff makes the argument that, that it's, it's not dogma, right? It's not doctrine. Yeah. It's 
purely a ritualistic issue. Um, I think the, the issue is that they want to keep doing what the people before them have yeah. done, and they assume that can be traced back to the apostles. That, that's, that was the big argument with the, um, the churches in Asia Minor. This is what John did, this yeah. is what Philip did, this is what Polycarp did, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to follow in that custom. Um, whereas um, Anicetus, I think I have the quote in there, in the, uh, his big thing is, well, this is what the presbyters did before my time. They always broke their fast and celebrated the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day. So that's when we do it. We, we're not going to do it any other day. And so I think that is... You have to remember that this is a time when the, the, the New Testament, and we'll have a lesson on the canon of the New Testament and that coming together, but this is a time when there isn't really a, 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 a settled a New Testament canon. They have the Old Testament, they might have some of the Gospels, some of Paul's letters, so they're, they're trying to read their Old Testament in light of what Christ has done, what Christ has accomplished. So they're reading the Passover, right? Exodus chapter 12. This is obviously pointing us to Christ, the, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So we're going to, we're going to celebrate this feast, but uh, in light of Christ's fulfillment. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the big deal, is that they, they want to maintain the practice that those before them had introduced or had done. Of course, the danger with that is that innovations will creep in, um, which is why I'm thankful that as a Reformed church, we, we hold the Sola Scriptura. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that, if, if that helps yeah, at all. Yeah, it does. I think we can talk more privately. Uh, sure. it, I was just, um, it just touches on that question of what the Christian church is actually bound by, right. you know, right. um, and it seems like, like I totally hear what you're saying of, hey, they're wanting to honor what their forefathers had done. And I think we would agree with that in right. a lot of regards, right? We, we have a Reformation night in honor of, um, you know, heroes of the faith that we look, look up to. And yet we know we're not bound to have a Reformation night, right? right? right. And so we're never going to excommunicate another church out of our fellowship right. because they didn't have a Reformation night. You know what I mean? It's just fascinating to think about how the early church dealt with some of those issues. And it'd be, I'd be curious to just read more about pastorally how they were working through the binding of the conscience, yeah. what is binding upon the Christian church to celebrate or not to celebrate, things like that. Yeah, that is a good point. Any other questions, comments? We do. It's like a, the floodgates have opened. <laughs> you have any books you recommend on uh, church history? Um, there are so many good resources out there. As far as books go, um, Philip Schaff's Church History is immense. It's in-depth. Um, Bruce Shelley's, um, I think it's called Church History in Plain Language, just came out with a, a new edition. Um, that book has been really helpful. Um, if you're really interested in early church history, um, you can't do any better than Eusebius, his ecclesiastical history, which is, I mean, it's not terribly long. Um, there is a translation done by, I want to say the guy's name is Paul Mayer. Uh, it's a more modern translation, that the language is more updated, and it's heavily footnoted with some articles. 
uh, at the end of each chapter that kind of illuminates some of the more obscure historical things that are going on. Uh, so those are some resources I would recommend as far as books go. Um, other resources, like Ligonier, uh, uh, Robert Godfrey did a, a whole series with Ligonier going through church history. That's excellent. Um, yeah, there are just so many, so many resources out there today. It's hard to, hard to pick one. Any other questions or comments? Okay, well, we'll close in prayer, and then uh, Brother Aaron will lead us in the doxology. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, your goodness toward us um, and sending your Son, Jesus, to die for our sins. And that, Father, you did not leave your Holy One in the grave to see corruption, Lord, but you raised him on the third day so that we might have the assurance that his sacrifice is sufficient for the cleansing of our sin and that in him we might have the hope of eternal life and that we share in that hope even now as we eagerly await the coming again of our Lord Jesus from heaven. Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to learn uh, not only from the successes of church history and how they, they labored to uh, thwart heresy and false teaching, but also in the failings of church history where we see that uh, men have sought to overemphasize things which you yourself are silent about in your word. Grant us, Father, charity and love toward one, toward one another, but also boldness to stand firm upon that faith which you have delivered once and for all to your saints that is contained in the writings of the Old and New Testament. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we part ways this afternoon. See us back uh, next uh, Lord's Day as we celebrate together uh, the resurrection of our Lord, the hope of the Christian faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen.